Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The actor Marlon Brando is reported to have said near the end of his life these words. He said, life is a mystery and an unsolvable one. You just simply live it though through, and as you draw your last breath, you say, what was that all about? I would say to that, what a sad way to end a life, and what a sad way to live a life. In response to that, Christian apologist Oz Guinness writes, Life is a journey, a voyage, a quest, a pilgrimage, a personal odyssey. All of us, without exception, find ourselves at some point between the beginning and the end of that journey. We didn't choose the day on which we were born, and we don't know the day on which we will die. We did not bring ourselves into being. But for better or for worse, we are alive now, and there's no going back in time. Time hurries us forward, and there is no standing still. We are on the journey, inescapably and irreversibly, and it's up to us to find out how to make the most of the journey of our lives. I agree. Life is a journey, but the most important part of the journey is the destination. And the one thing that the Christian faith offers through the resurrection is that our journey will continue throughout all of eternity. But what does that mean, and and what does that look like? I'd like to look at a section of Philippians chapter 3 to answer that this morning. Verse 10, please. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This passage brings out the other side of Easter, the other side of of the doctrine of the resurrection. If somebody says, what is the Christian doctrine of the resurrection? The most likely answer is, well, that's simple. It's the belief that Jesus Christ, though he was killed, lay in the grave for three days and then was resurrected and brought back to life. But that's not all. The doctrine of the resurrection is what Jesus himself tells us when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, 
And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What Jesus is bringing out is there are two sides to the doctrine of the resurrection. And it is absolutely critical that we understand both of those. On the one hand, the resurrection of Christ is a fact that has to be believed. On the other hand, it is an experience to connect with. Not just what we believe in, but also what we experience. If you believe it as a fact, but you never experience the resurrection, or if you think of the resurrection as just a kind of spiritual experience, but you don't believe it was a fact, in both situations, as opposed to those, as those two things are, they come out with the same result. And that is a religion with form, but no kind of power. But, if you've never had a profound experience of the resurrection, if you haven't actually experienced your own spiritual resurrection, which is what Paul is talking about here, then you also have a form of religion without any power as well. My question to us this morning, on the basis of this text, is do we know them both? Do you believe it was a historical event, and have you also had that profound experience? We can see this through an alliteration beginning with the letter P. Paul's experience with the resurrection was personal, powerful, painful, and practical. You see, when he became a Christian, it was not the end for Paul, but it was the beginning. His experience with Christ was so tremendous that it completely transformed every aspect of his life. And that experience continued in the years that followed. It was a personal experience, as he says, that I may know him. As Paul walked with Christ, prayed, obeyed his will, and sought to glorify his name. When he was living under the law, all Paul had was just a set of rules. But now he had a friend, a master, and a constant companion. It was also a powerful experience, as in the power of his resurrection. As the resurrection power of Christ went to work in Paul's life. But, and this is the one that people often don't talk about, it was also a painful experience, as in the fellowship of his sufferings. But Paul knew that it was a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Likewise, as we grow in our knowledge of Christ and experience his power, we are going to eventually come under the attack of the enemy. Paul had been a persecutor of the church at one time, but he has now learned what it means to be persecuted. But it was all worth it. For walking with Christ was also a practical experience, as Paul was being made conformable to his death. Paul lived for Christ because he died to self, he took up his cross daily, and he followed him. The result of his death was a spiritual resurrection that caused Paul to walk in newness of life. Christianity says this, Do you want to experience God? 
then you have to believe the truth. You have to believe that these things happened, that he really lived, and that he really died, and that he really rose again from the dead. If you see that truth, and you see its coherence, and you believe it, then that is going to lead to experience. Then that experience is going to lead to more understanding of the truth, and then that truth is going to lead to more experience. Paul would say, in my legalistic religious days, I knew about God theologically and intellectually, but now I want to know him intimately. But how does that happen? When do you really know the Lord? When you realize that he truly is alive. When he moves from the flannel board Jesus to the living Lord of glory. When do you really understand that he's alive? It's most often those times when you go through tough times. And when you join the fellowship of the suffering. I don't know about you. But when I'm on easy street cruising along, I don't know Jesus in the same way that I often discover him when I'm going through difficulty and problems, heartache and setbacks, tragedy and pain. Here in this book of rejoicing, which is what Philippians is known for, Paul says, don't despise the difficulty, the tragedy, the tough times the setbacks, or the heartaches. For those are often the times you will understand that Jesus is truly risen. When the day is dark and the waters deep, the outlook grim, that is often when you will discover Christ. Sure, I want to know the Lord, people say. I just don't want to go through any kind of tough times. Of course I want to know his power. But I don't want to deal with the fellowship that only comes through suffering. Listen to me. The only way we can know the Lord intimately is through the power of his resurrection. And the best way to experience the power of his resurrection is through hard times. How many men did we throw in the fire? Nebuchadnezzar asked his servants. Why, we threw in three, your nebbiness. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar rubs his eyes and then says, Well, how is it that I see four, and the fourth one is like the Son of God? So clear did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see Jesus in the fire of suffering that they chose to remain with him in the fiery furnace rather than walk free without him. The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are usually times of intense suffering. Why? Because suffering drives believers to his side. They find in him a merciful high priest, a faithful friend who feels their pain, and a sympathetic companion who faced all the trials and temptations that they would face, but why does he say, I want to know the power of his resurrection? And then it says, to share in his sufferings and to be made conformable to his death. 
What does he mean? Well, I think it's really perfectly logical. If we go out into the world resembling Jesus, that's what the power of the resurrection means by a supernatural power within us. If you do that, you will be resembling Jesus in things like turn the other cheek, always tell the truth, love people who are hard to love. If you do those types of things, what's going to happen? you're going to find his sufferings reenacted in your life. Now, you're not going to hear this on TBN or the PTL network. PTL is supposed to stand for praise the Lord, but it's probably more accurate to say pass the loot. I'm just being up front with you this morning. If you are going to live a resurrected life, you are going to be taken advantage of sometimes. People are going to be unhappy with you. People are going to be offended by you. They were at Jesus. Why do we think that we would be any different? And that's where verse 11 comes in. You know Christ, and that stirs up the power of the resurrection, and that actually reenacts the suffering of Christ in each of our lives. I won't candy coat it this morning. There will be troubles in your life. There will be persecution in your life. There will be mistreatment in your life. He then says that I may somehow can attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's one person's paraphrase of what Jesus means when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, and even though they die, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Here's a paraphrase. Jesus says, The one who unites with me by faith becomes spiritually alive and is transformed from one degree of splendor to the next. I like that. That means this process goes on and on forever. Even physical death cannot stop it. Rather, it instead accelerates it. The worst thing that can happen to us this morning, I think we would all agree, is death. But death actually takes a spiritual resurrection process that's going on in our life right now and moves that process to perfection. For when the body dies... Our spirits burst into flame into his presence. And we are burning bright with his energy, power, goodness, and all of his glory flowing in and out of us. That's what you're in for this morning if you're a believer. I say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Verse 12, please. Not that I've already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Okay. How do you know you've actually had an experience of his presence? How do you know that you've been moved beyond the intellectual, mechanical working of just being a good person to actually really knowing him? Do you know how you know? What does Paul say? He says, I haven't attained to this yet. This is the Apostle Paul. 
He is radically dissatisfied with his level of knowledge of God. He says, I haven't completely gotten this, and so I want more of it. The way you know that you know God is you have a consuming passion to know him more. Even we at Calvary Chapel would agree that the stomach eventually gets tired of food. It eventually fills up. But the heart in love never gets enough of the beloved. This is how you know that you've come to truly know him. It is when we want more of him than anything else this world can offer. By the time Paul writes this epistle, he has been a Christian for at least 30 years. And of those 30 years, he's been active in ministry for 25 years. Think about all that he had done, all the churches he has planted, and how he has served God at a tremendous sacrifice to himself. But even after all of that, he realizes, I'm still not perfect yet. That gives me hope this morning. I don't know if you knew this, but there is a section of the church that teaches a false doctrine called sinless perfection. This passage that we're looking at this morning deals a devastating blow to that false doctrine of perfectionism. Now, perfectionism is the teaching that believers can reach a place of spiritual and moral perfection in this life. Perfectionists teach that by a second work of grace, believers may instantaneously and forever be made completely sinless. Some even go as far as to teach the complete eradication of the sin nature. Unless one is completely blinded to themselves and so thoroughly deluded, I don't know how anyone could possibly believe that. I'm going to share something really profound with you this morning. None of us, even the best and most spiritual among us, are perfect this morning. The most devoted of Christians still sin on occasion. I heard one man say the worst fist fight he ever saw in his life was two deacons fighting over the doctrine of sanctification. That's where we live. But the Apostle Paul, undoubtedly the most committed, dedicated, spiritually mature Christian who ever lived, confessed gladly that he had failed to reach spiritual perfection 30 years after his conversion. And really, that confession was clear evidence of his true and mature spirituality. Now, some in Philippi might have mistakenly assumed that having gained those marvelous benefits, Paul had finally reached spiritual perfection. And the Judaizers may also have taught the Philippians that spiritual affection was attainable through being circumcised and keeping the entire law. There was also heretics who taught that spiritual perfection awaited those who attained a certain level of knowledge. Now, obviously... Pursuing the prize of spiritual perfection begins with dissatisfaction with one's present spiritual condition. Those who think they have reached spiritual perfection will not see the need to pursue a better condition, right? I mean, why should they chase something they already believe that they have? 
The danger is such complacent, contented people are in grave danger of becoming insensitive to their sin and blinded to their many weaknesses. Over the years, I have learned that the most truly mature and godly saints I have ever known have always had the most sensitive awareness of their own sins, and they were humblest before God because of that. That means we will never reach sinless perfection in our flesh while we reside on this earth. Paul's favorite athletic metaphor is that of a foot race. He declared to the Ephesian elders, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Reminding the Corinthians of the dedicated athletes who competed in the Olympic Games, Paul also wrote, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize, so run in such a way that you may win. Now that speaks of an aggressive, energetic endeavor. Paul pursued the spiritual prize with all of his might, straining every spiritual muscle as he ran to win. What was Christ's goal in saving Paul? The apostle himself stated this in Romans 8.29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God chose Paul, as he did all believers, to make them just like Jesus Christ. That was the Lord's goal in saving Paul, and that was Paul's goal in response. And though Paul had not achieved spiritual perfection, he had what I would call that blessed discontentment that motivated him to still pursue it. And it wasn't until the very end of his life that Paul would declare, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. A person with a passion for Christ is like a person's life is kind of like seeing Christ, it's sort of like my glasses. Well, how is that? Well, I don't spend all my time seeing my glasses, but I do spend all my time seeing through my glasses. And if the relationship between me and my glasses gets off in any way, such as if they go far, too far down my nose, or if they get too dirty, it affects my perception of everything else. Likewise, a person who has a passion for Christ isn't necessarily always talking about Christ, but she is looking at everything through Christ. You see how that works? The more you know him, the more you grow into the power of his resurrection. The more time you spend with him, the more time you see him, the more time you seek his love, the more you read his word and pray, the more that is, that is going to stir up that resurrection power that resides within you. Paul just doesn't say, I want to know him. He says, I also want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be like him. I want to have his boldness. I want to have his love. I want to have his wisdom. I want to have his power. I want to be able to take criticism the way that he did. I want to be as courageous as he was. I want to be as soft 
and as tough. I want to be as wise and as simple. I want to be like Jesus. What's the key that we can do that? I think it lies in the next verse. Look at verse 13 with me. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Someone once asked cellist Pablo Casal, since he was in his 80s, and was known as the best cellist in the world, why he kept practicing for hours every single day. He responded, because I think I'm still getting better. Paul wrote, not that, I've only, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the call for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you would have said to him, Paul, you're already in. You're even an apostle. You've done miracles. You've been transported to the heavenly realm. So why do you keep pressing on the way that you do? I think Paul would have said, because I think I'm getting better. He then says, there is just one thing that I do. So, after 30 years, if Paul can reduce his life down into one thing, well, now he's got my attention. It is such exceptionally focused people who succeed in athletics and other pursuits of life. Sadly, many people dabble in much, but succeed in nothing. Despite all the energy they may expend, they really accomplish very little. Their lives are full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. To avoid such lack of focus, the psalmist prayed, Unite my heart to fear your name. And Solomon counseled, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Paul is talking about what it means to be a Christian. And in verses 12 and 14, you'll see that he used the word press. I press on, he says. One thing that's very interesting is the very same, the same Greek word used in verses 12 and 14 that's translated press is also used back in verse 6. He uses the same Greek word, but there it's translated persecute. Paul says, I persecuted the church. Then he uses that same word down in verses 12 and 14, but it's translated press. The question is right away, what kind of word could serve both those contexts? How could a single word be translated persecute over here and then press over there? Here's the answer. The word means to pound. I pound. I beat. The only difference is it used to be that before Paul was a Christian, he was gathering up the whole church and pounding it towards its death, he thought. But after he became a Christian, he's gathering up his whole self. And now he's pounding it. And he's pushing it forcefully and intensely. 
and focusing it toward a single point. Simply put, Jesus has completely taken over Paul's entire life. But some will say, well, I believe Christianity is just a private thing. One of the things I hate about you born-again types is you're always talking about it. Christianity is a private thing. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to make a fuss about it. It is just for my own private life. Do you know what they mean by that? That statement assumes that Christianity is just a piece of your life. But Paul says, no. To be a Christian means to give up your entire life and gather it together and have it intensely focused and pushed on and pounded towards a single thing. Our lives should be about just one thing. Our whole life should be pushed towards one thing. And as a result, we become a person of enormous energy and power. Colossians 1.21, Paul says, I struggle by the energy that he so mightily inspires within me. Okay, Pastor Bill, tell me how to do that. The key is to not look back either in pride or in dejection. I read when, when Australia was a new nation, its leaders established a national crest. Two animals stood on either side of the crest, the kangaroo and the emu. Now these two animals share one similar characteristic. While kangaroos and emus turn their heads to glance backwards in order to get their bearings, they always move forward. And though each animal can reach speeds of up to 30 miles per hour, neither one of them are able to walk backwards. So the founders of Australia wanted their country represented by what moved forwards and never backward. That is precisely what Jesus wants us to do. Look back just long enough to recognize and learn from our mistakes, but always, always keep moving forward. Sadly, some people are always looking back. They can't get over what happened to them last year, five years ago, or even 20 years ago. She hurt me. He fired me. That company misused me. Or on the other hand, some people look back and try to live in their glory days instead of taking new ground. Paul says just the opposite. This is what I do. I forget that which is behind, and the same mind is to be in you. The sin that we've committed in the past, if we dwell on it, can condemn us to the place of paralysis. But not only that, the good stuff we've done by his grace can puff us up with pride. The only option is to do what Paul did. He forgot the past. We must be those who say, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to be tripped up by that, good or bad. I'm not going to glory in that. I'm not going to be confused by that. All of that is behind me now, and I've decided to move on. Such concentration possesses both a negative and a positive aspect. Negatively, Paul maintained his focus by forgetting what was behind. A runner looks back, always risks being passed. 
nor does a runner's past performance in past races guarantee success or failure in the present or in any future race. The past is not relevant. What matters is making the maximum effort as to the present so as to sustain momentum for our future. Perfectionists and legalists look to their past achievements to validate their supposed spiritual status. But Paul made a break with his past, both good and bad. Religious achievements, virtuous deeds, great success in ministry, as well as sins, missed opportunities, and disasters must all be forgotten. They do not control the present nor the future. Believers cannot live on past victories, nor should they be debilitated by the guilt of past sins. But Paul gained far more than he lost. In fact, the gains were so thrilling that Paul considered all other things nothing but garbage in comparison. No wonder he had joy, since his life did not depend on the cheap things of the world, but on the eternal values can only be found in Christ. Paul had the spiritual mind and looked at the things of earth from heaven's point of view. See, people who live for things can never truly be happy because they must constantly protect their treasures and worry lest they ever lose their value. Not so the believer. His treasures in Christ can never be stolen and they never lose their value. That prize was what motivated him to run to win. Now, believers will not completely receive the prize, which is Christ's likeness, with all its eternal benefits, until that upward call of Christ Jesus, when he ushers us into God's kingdom and his presence forever. As I noted earlier, perfection is not attainable in this life. The finish line is the threshold of heaven, where the rewards will be handed out. And it is not until Christ appears that we will be just like him because we will see him as he is. The key is to not look back and to keep our eyes focused on the coming Christ. In his book, The Way of Holiness, Stephen Olford writes, Nothing is more miserable than to know that you are living a wasteful life. One day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if your life has been self-centered, worldly, manifesting those sexual, spiritual, and social sins, you're going to see that whole life of yours burned up. You will be saved, but you will have the unutterable shame of pressing the charred embers of a wasted life into his pierced hands and saying, that's all I have for you, Lord. Calvary Chapel, Princeton, life is too precious and too short to waste even a minute of it. The great news for us today is that because of the resurrection, that doesn't have to be us. We can start fresh this very morning and live a life that matters now and eternally. As we finish up today, Tom Friends of the New York Times asked Coach Jimmy Johnson what he told his players before leading the Dallas Cowboys onto the field for the 1993 Super Bowl. Johnson said, I told them if I laid a two-by-four across this board, everybody there could walk across it and not fall. 
because our focus would be walking the length of that board. He said, but if I put that same board 10 stories high between two buildings, only a few would make it because now their focus would be on falling. Johnson then told his players not to focus on the crowd or the media or the possibility of falling, but to focus on each play of the game as if it was a good practice session. And the Cowboys won 52-7. to So, my beloved, let's not focus on our past failures or our past accomplishments. Let us this morning fix our eyes afresh on Jesus and run like we've never run before because the finish line is in view. Let us pray. You, O Lord, are the resurrection. What is just a doctrine to us now will one day be the most precious truth we can ever know. We long to be with you and the saints from every generation. But until that day, let us live resurrected lives that we may draw others to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Amen.